you know, if you're constantly having glucose in high levels, it's going to lead to insulin resistance and it's going to lead to chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease. But if we think about in like a more zoomed in level of also the other consequences of high glucose levels, it's really affecting our micro microvasculature of the body. So it's actually glucose spikes and high glycemic variability are an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Cara Collier. Cara is the head of nutrition at Nutrisense.io, which is a company that offers commercial continuous glucose monitoring services. Your glucose is one of the best indicators of overall metabolic health and flexibility. I also tried out their CGM software and it was very easy to comprehend and use. It's an invaluable tool for anyone wanting to gain more insight into how certain foods affect their metabolism and glucose levels. You can get a $20 discount off the Nutrisense CGM by using the code SEAM at Nutrisense.io. That's SEAM, S-I-I-M at Nutrisense.io. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks, excited to be here. Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, the, the services that your company provides is really, I think it's really important and it's very really fascinating as well. And it's going to help you to like gain a lot of insight into your uh, overall health and uh, metabolism. So how did you become involved with uh, NutriSense and uh, how did you start working for them? Yeah, um, so I'm a registered dietitian and my interest in metabolic health and glucose metabolism really stemmed from my early career um, in the hospital system. So I was working primarily in ICUs and it was a very frustrating experience overall. Um, everyone who's coming into the ICU was not coming in for a gunshot wound or a car accident, but they're coming in because of complications of lifestyle related chronic diseases. Um, so diabetes, complications, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease. So it felt like it was all of this unnecessary suffering. Um, and then I was meeting people way too late. I'm seeing them when they're in critical condition and we're trying to make lifestyle changes and it, it's just not a good place to be. So I became kind of obsessed with the topic of what is tying all of these together and then what do we do about it? And really what's the root of all of these chronic conditions as metabolic dysfunction. So insulin resistance and what do we do about it? Somehow we have to catch it earlier and we have to motivate people to care about it from an earlier stage. So I became obsessed with continuous glucose monitoring at that stage from my experience in the hospital um, because it really solves the problem of you have this real time data. So it's actually motivating to people to understand their health and take care of it early on. And it's driving at the root of a lot of these chronic conditions. So mm -hmm. from there, kind of jump ship in the traditional healthcare system and help start the company NutriSense with two other guys. Um, and then what we're doing there is we're using these CGMs in non-diabetics to try to prevent those chronic conditions I was seeing day in and day out and trying to catch it way earlier so that people can actually optimize their health in, in a meaningful way with data from their own body. So pretty um, obsessed with this topic. And I think it's really key to people to be able to see what's actually happening inside their bodies. Right now, these devices, um, in America at least, are prescription only. Um, and so we're trying to reduce that barrier to entry because we believe that everyone should have access to this data about themselves and make changes or decisions based on their own body and not just, you know, whatever 
fad diets floating around or whatever that, you know, somebody on Instagram is telling them, but instead like real data from your body, just like, you know, lots of other wearables, HRV, all of this is really important for people to be monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, the best, uh, best uh, prevention or the best cure is like prevention that you prevent yourself mm-hmm. from getting sick. And uh, it's uh, really easy to get uh, lost in some of the like uh, minutia or some of the things that aren't as important as just like the fundamentals, such as your, uh, you know, gl- glucose metabolism and uh, insulin sensitivity. So that's uh, like really, that, that's unfortunate. Like the m- mainstream medicine doesn't really take into account and they only resort to it only like in very, like, uh, unconventional circumstances like they may only prescribe these glucose glucose monitors to actual diabetics and they they don't use it as prevention preventative tools which are actually the most uh applicable use for them where you actually do use them before you get sick 100 percent, yeah i would agree that it's it's use case is much better for early on and even in diabetics um only about 30 percent of diabetics are wearing continuous glucose monitors so it's not even very mainstream treatment approach for a diabetic. It's usually only used in like a type one who is insulin dependent, not lifestyle related. Um, and then with type twos, it's, it's still not very common for physicians to be giving these to their, their patients either. So it's unfortunate. Our healthcare system does not do preventative health very well. I think most of us are probably aware of that, especially the American healthcare system. Um, so we have to really take our health into our own hands because it, the system is certainly not going to do it for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully we have like maybe, you know, these different uh, companies and startups are I- implementing more of these uh, devices and uh, becoming more popular. Uh, but you mentioned that uh, one of the biggest uh, reasons for, you know, metabolic dysfunction is, uh, you know, managing your glucose. And why is that so? And why is like your you know overall glucose metabolism so important for your metabolic health? Yeah, absolutely. So I like to describe glucose as the newest vital sign because it's not only giving you insight into like how many carbs you ate and if you're diabetic or not, but it's also telling you how your sleep is and how your stress is and how your exercise is doing because glucose is related to all of these factors. It increases or decreases in relation to all of these pillars of health. And so If you think about it, at the core of every human life is a metabolic system, so a cellular engine. And this can either be really powerful and uplifting, so the engine can either drive the car in a really powerful way, or if it's broken, it can be degenerative and debilitating. And so a poor metabolic health, which glucose is the root of, can either drive the system optimally or it can destroy the system. If you think about it, the body only has a few teaspoons of glucose, blood sugar in the system at all times. So it works really, really hard to keep glucose in a very tight homeostatic range. And so when we start to deviate above that or below that for whatever reason, you know, related to diet, food, um, stress, sleep, then that is a signal that the body's under stress and it's not able to regulate in this homeostatic range. So we really want to keep a close eye on that range and make sure that the body is able to keep it there. So if if you have some carbohydrates, you're going to expect glucose to go up a little bit because it breaks down into glucose, but your body should be able to handle that and it should be able to come back down into normal and not go too high. 
So it gives you a good signal of just how the metabolic system is running, how your engine is running, and glucose is always involved. Whether you're eating carbs or not, there's always glucose in the system. So mm-hmm. we can see it kind of like gasoline in the car. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like uh, glucose is uh, like a very important molecule, and uh, it only like becomes harmful if it's in excess. Sort of say that you know if it's within the homeostatic range, then it's relatively benign and not harmful. But if it goes beyond that, then it turns to like it's like almost almost with anything else as well. Like too much too many calories is bad, too much exercise is bad, mm-hmm. too much stress and too much glucose is bad. So yeah, it's a it's a matter of balance. Sort of say that so the body always functions best when it's in uh, like the optimal state of uh, homeostasis and uh, relative uh, balance. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's probably pretty well known to your audience and a lot of people in this space that, you know, if you're constantly having glucose in high levels, it's going to lead to insulin resistance and it's going to lead to chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease. But if we think about in like a more zoomed in level of also the other consequences of high glucose levels, it's really affecting our micro microvasculature of the body. So it's actually glucose spikes and high glycemic variability are an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So taking diabetes complete out, completely out of the picture, each high glucose spike or push out of that homeostatic range is doing damage to those endothelial cells. So there's the concept of glucotoxicity, where literally too much glucose in the system is toxic to the body. So this is stimulates a whole host of stress markers, inflammatory cytokines. So it's also stress on the mitochondria every time we have this massive glucose increase that our body has to process. So you know, as you know, the mitochondria is a site for these metabolic reactions. And a large glucose load puts stress on the cell and it overwhelms the metabolic capabilities of the mitochondria and they're going to work overtime. Um, And when they're working really hard, it's like putting the gas pedal all the way to the floor. It's going to produce some free radicals and oxidative damage along the way because it's trying to process this huge glucose load, right? It's Mm. trying to get the glucose out of the system. And this can lead to a host of, you know, endogenous reactive oxygen species, oxidative stress, inflammation, Um, If we have a glucose spike every once in a while, like, you know, normally you're doing pretty good and then you have a glucose spike, your body is going to be able to handle that. It can process that. It's not a big deal. It's not going to cause long-term consequences. But if, you know, each day for breakfast, you're eating something that you think is healthy, but it's really causing this massive glucose spike and you're repeating that day in and day out, that's when you're going to start to see this damage accumulate. You're having this inflammatory processes every single day. So Mm -hmm. It's really about, yeah, maintaining that homeostatic range as much as possible, but the occasional excursion in or out is not going to be detrimental. It's about repeated offenses. Hmm. So you're telling me that uh, the Cheerios and apple juice in the morning is not a good breakfast. (laughs) Not a great breakfast. Yeah, a lot of our standard breakfast items are carb heavy and protein deficient. Um, which is not a good good recipe for good glucose management, especially refined or any processed carbohydrates for most people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like really interesting that you said the that the biggest uh, danger actually comes from the spike, so to say, that the variation is a bigger risk factor or in the independent risk factor than. So, so would it mean that it also depends a lot on the individual, so to say, because every person I would imagine has a different homeostatic range depending on their like physical activity, muscle mass, and uh, what kind of diet they're eating. So maybe like a low-carb person has a lower uh, basal blood glucose level compared to someone who is a high-carb diet. But both for, for both of them, the spike is where the damage occurs, not, not, not the actual 
uh, range of their blood sugar. Am I right? Or yeah, so there's three primary metrics we're looking at. The first is like fasting glucose. So kind of that baseline when you're not eating and that's what you might measure if you go to the doctor and you're trying to see what's happening with your glucose. That might be the only snapshot you get. And that is important. We do want a fasting glucose between 70 and 90 milligrams. Um, but really where a lot of the action is happening and the most important metrics are in the postprandial state. So what's happening to your glucose when you eat? And it's two primary metrics we're looking at there. It's how high does your glucose go? Because that maximum value is important for the endothelial tissue, for cardiovascular disease risk. We're, we want to see how high it goes. But then we also want to see the shape of the postprandial curve. So, um, you know, are you going really high and then going right back down? That's pretty good signal that you're insulin sensitive. So maybe, you know, glucose went up because you had some carbohydrates, but then you released insulin in an appropriate amount of time. And then your body responded to that insulin signal, came back down to normal. And an hour later, you're back down to what you were before you started eating. That would be a healthy metabolic response. Um, meanwhile, let's say you don't spike very high from the glucose load. Um, maybe, you, you know, you have a low maximum value, but you stay at that level for three, four hours. That's a large area under the curve. That's high glycemic variability. That's mm -hmm. equally bad as a high maximum value. Mm -hmm. So that's showing that either your body is processing that glucose for a long time, like that the concept of glucotoxicity is that the body wants to get that glucose out of the system and back down to that normal range. So if you're staying high, even if it's just mildly high, that's a signal to me that your body is struggling to come back down to normal quickly. So either your cells aren't very insulin sensitive anymore, um, or you know, you're not releasing the right amount of insulin. Something has gone wrong with that communication signal. So basically, you know, insulin is a hormone and what hormones do is they communicate things. So when glucose goes up, it should stimulate insulin. And then that should send a signal where it's like, okay, we bring glucose back down. The cells, all cells have an insulin receptor. And so it should signal that cell, take the glucose in and come back down to normal. If that's not happening, then we know something's gone wrong with the communication signals. Um, there can be many, many reasons for insulin resistance and decreased insulin sensitivity. So, you know, it's, it's multifactorial, but that shape of the glucose curve is extremely important to see kind of what's going on there. Hmm. And it's really hard to catch that shape um, if you're not wearing a CGM, right? You could yeah. try pricking your finger like a bunch of times in a row after you eat something, but you might miss the maximum value. You might kind of miss what's going on. And so CGM is definitely the easiest way to ha see what's happening in that postprandial state, which is really where a lot of the insights come from. Yeah, yeah. Like the CGM is going to give like more clarity and uh, it's very convenient. It's very fast and you can see it it's like in real time compared to yeah, pricking your finger all the time yeah. within every few minutes. So it's going to be, you know, more costly and it's going to be just a waste of, uh, you know, the strips and uh, that sort of thing. So that's why like I really find a lot of the value, especially for doing some different experiments on yourself or just trying mm -hmm. to figure out uh, what kind of foods uh, you react uh, the most to uh, when it comes to like glucose spikes. So it's a really, really especially like even for, for non-diabetics, it's a, like a really valuable tool yeah. or any, any kind of uh, health uh, like intervention. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, most of our customers are non-diabetics. We do take some diabetics who are lifestyle controlled, um, not on insulin, but 
in general, one of the biggest reasons that people are wanting to do this is first just to kind of see where they're at with their metabolic health. Like, am I showing any signs of insulin resistance? We can do at home glucose tolerance tests and put a big glucose load in your system and see how that postprandial response looks. So um, we can assess your metabolic health, but it's also really important just to understand what your interpersonal differences are. Um, we're all a unique compilation of genetics, epigenetics, microbiome, and we're going to have unique responses to food, even if it's whole foods, healthy foods, like you and I are not going to respond the same exact way to the same food. Um, and, and you really don't know that unless you're measuring it. So as a healthy person, like me as a generally healthy person, that's my biggest insights from wearing the CGMs is just seeing which foods I respond better to than others. Like I've tested now tons and tons of foods because I've learned many of these, but glycemic index doesn't always match up with how my glucose response looks. So mm -hmm. um, just like, for example, uh, like quinoa versus white rice, like everyone in, you know, in mainstream would say quinoa is probably a better choice, but I have a much, much higher glucose response to quinoa than I do from white rice. And so mm -hmm. that's just like, you know, a unique variation that now I know, and I'm, I'm going to choose foods accordingly to how I respond, not to like, you know, glycemic index or what I think might be healthier. Um, yeah. So everyone has these really unique responses. I don't know if, you, if did you learn anything interesting when you were wearing one about like how you responded to certain foods that you weren't expecting? Uh, yeah, I did uh, wear it. And uh, mostly I didn't do like any crazy experiments or something. I didn't eat like mm -hmm. a lot of things out of my ordinary menu. But overall, uh, I did see like a regular, you know, uh, spike when I ate some carbs, but it came back down quite quickly, so to say, so it didn't stay elevated. So I was, you know, right. pleasantly surprised that although, let's say, for example, uh, I ate some um, carbs and fruit for for someday on someday and uh the glucose spiked into like one 180 but it came back down within like 15 minutes so to say into into 120 mm -hmm. and 110 so uh, it it it, it kind of didn't cause this prolonged uh, elevation of the blood glucose that you would might see like on most days i'm eating like a lower carb keto diet so uh usually what may happen in, in that case is that you uh, may develop some mild insulin resistance because you're not uh, burning carbs and you're not use, eating glucose. So the body kind of loses the ability right. to do it. But uh, that for me didn't happen because I kind of keep my uh, carbs in the menu uh, on a regular basis. So I kind of switch back and forth. So I didn't develop this uh, insulin resistance, so to say. Yeah, that's exactly what I recommend to a lot of people because I see this issue quite often of like physiological insulin resistance with people who are never including any carbohydrates into their diet. Um, so that's what you kind of touched on. But this happens really often is where the fasting glucose will start to rise too because the body is adapting. It's learning that it's never going to get glucose from food. And so it's starting to figure out what it needs to do to adapt, right? So over time, it's gonna lower fasting insulin, reduce peripheral insulin sensitivity in the muscles, and it's gonna raise fasting glucose because it wants to make sure there's always glucose present and it's learning that it's never coming in from food. Um, and so a lot of times I'll see people who are very strict zero carbohydrate diets and after about like a year, two years, three years into this diet, um, fasting glucose is rising and they're wondering what's going on. And it's this physiological insulin resistance. Right. We don't necessarily know for sure if, if this is like a good or a bad thing. We don't really have evidence. Most likely it's not a bad thing because all other health metrics 
um, are, are exactly where we want them to be. But yeah, when people then will test some carbohydrates in this scenario, they're going to have an extremely high and prolonged glucose right. response because the body is not prepared for the carbohydrates. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's not pathological. It's yeah, like this physiological exactly. uh, acute uh, insulin resistance. And uh, it actually has like some benefits, like survival benefits. So it's, it's supposedly the muscles become insulin resistant so that the brain mm -hmm. could get the glucose so that the muscles wouldn't steal the glucose. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's only a problem if you're like uh, about to eat a bunch of carbs in a state of ketosis and uh, like you... I don't know, break ketosis with some donuts or some uh, mm -hmm. jelly beans or something like that, then your, then your blood glucose is going to spike really high and it's going to stay elevated for longer because uh, you, you, you uh, didn't break the insulin resistance first. Whereas if you like strategically break your ketosis with maybe like a little bit of carbs, you get ketosis, you reestablish insulin sensitivity, then the following or the consequent uh, carbohydrates you may eat will not have that uh, pronounced uh, spike because you kind of uh, reestablished yeah, insulin sensitivity beforehand. So it depends on like yeah, what, exactly. what, kind, what kind of a diet are you planning to follow. If you are planning to stay keto, strict keto for the rest of your life, then uh, in that case, it's not, it's not a problem, but it may become a problem if you're like accidentally about to eat some carbs and you haven't, uh, you know, reestablished insulin sensitivity uh, beforehand. 100%. Yeah. And that's something that I saw more often than I was expecting to of these people just like, you know, it's like a birthday or Christmas and they're having like yeah. totally abnormal meals and it doesn't, it really doesn't go very well. So yeah, you need to reintroduce a little bit. And for some people, just a little bit of carbs like the day before is enough to sort of reintroduce. But for some people I've seen that it takes much longer actually to um, reduce that temporary physiological insulin resistance. I think it depends on how metabolically flexible you are at the core. Um, a lot of that has to do probably with how physically active you are, how quickly you can reincorporate and your body readapts. So like you said, it, it's at the core, it's with the muscles. So skeletal muscles are usually a huge thing for glucose, but if glucose is never coming in, it starts to prefer fatty acids and ketones. And essentially the, the muscles are rejecting the glucose so that there's enough for the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and then if, if you're not very physically active, um, you're not stimulating your muscles a lot, you're not super metabolically flexible and you're, you are strict keto and then you try to reintroduce some carbohydrates, it seems that that reintroduction period takes a lot longer. So really try to include strength training if you're trying to switch in and out, which is what I would recommend at the end, but everyone's different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that like uh, resistance training and uh, having more muscle mass is uh, the best thing for insulin sensitivity and just increasing the amount of glucose you can dispose before it becomes like uh, pathological. hundred percent. Yeah. There's, there's really nothing you can do to increase your insulin sensitivity more than exercise in general, but particularly strength training is especially important. Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier, but like, what is the, you know, normal blood sugar range? So to say, where is, where is this homeostatic balance and uh, where, when does it become like diabetic and pre-diabetic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we want to see fasting glucose. So without food for typically about eight hours between 70 and 90, um, technically in per like who and ADA, they want to see a fasting glucose between 70 and a hundred, but um, once you start hitting in those 90s, there's a lot of research that shows this is, starts to become an independent risk factor for a whole host of chronic conditions. So I like to see it below 90. Um, and then the other threshold is how high you're getting that maximum value. 
in general, we want to see it below 140 as a maximum glucose value. Um, and again, this is about repetition. So one-time exposure to glucose above 140, not a big deal. But if you're having this, you know, every day, that's when we start to see damage occurring. Um, and this is based off of research that's been done on non-diabetics wearing continuous glucose monitors. Um, so with that being said, there's not a ton of that research. Um, again, who in ADA doesn't look at peak maximum glucose value as a metric they're even monitoring, which is really unfortunate to me because there's a ton of research that shows this is extremely important. So there's no um, official guideline about maximum value. They just want to see your two-hour postprandial mark at below 140. So we, we have it to a higher standard because we're really trying to optimize metabolic health and not just be not diabetic. So we wanna see that maximum value below 140 most of the time. And then we wanna see it back to pre-meal values within two to three hours of eating. So that's like general postprandial response. Um, the third metric would be glycemic variability. So this is the swings in your glucose. It's hard to measure if you're not wearing a continuous glucose monitor. Um, we utilize standard deviation as a glycemic variability marker um, with our software. And so most diabetics, their standard deviation goals are less than 30. But for a non-diabetic, we want to see it below 20. Um, so that's just like a general threshold. Most healthy people are, are like below 20, below 18 mm. for standard deviation. Yeah. And besides like carbs and sugar, like what's, what are the other things that may spike it and uh, raise your glucose? Yeah. So, um, there's four big pillars of health of what we talk about. It's food, fasting, exercise, and stress. Um, and so with food, of course, carbohydrates are going to be the biggest influencer, um, all types of carbohydrates, but especially processed refined carbohydrates, as we're all aware. Um, in general, modern carbohydrate recommendations are, are way too high. I think there's huge, huge mismatch between our physiology and the recommendations. Um, like my plate guidelines are like 45 to 65% of your calories from carbohydrates, which is really, really high for most people. So in general, I, I think there's a mismatch there. But like you said, your carbohydrate tolerance is going to depend on your activity level. Um, if you're really physically active, you're going to have higher insulin sensitivity. You're going to be burning through your glycogen stores, and you're going to be able to tolerate more carbohydrates without pushing outside of that homeostatic range. Um, so for everyone, that, that balance is a little bit different. Um, and I highly recommend, like you do, having periods where you're no carb and periods where you have moderate carbs so that you can be um, really metabolically flexible and not experience that physiological insulin resistance. But for everyone, it's, it's a little different. Um, beyond carbohydrates, really food quality and level of processing matter a lot. Um, so this includes like keto snacks. This includes, you know, processed oils. These, these things don't necessarily keep your glucose low just because they're keto friendly. So I, lot of, I see a lot of these um, artificial sweeteners, artificial fibers. So a lot of these like um, manufactured fibers that are supposed to be keto friendly are actually raising a lot of people's glucose levels. Um, so really, you know, if you want to keep it simple, just eat real food. That's like a good rule of thumb. You know, if you want to keep glucose in a tight range and you want to prevent all of these chronic conditions, just eat real food. That's one of the best things you can do. And then titrate your carbohydrates to your exercise level. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's the biggest thing. And, and portion sizes, of course, matter. I'm not like a calories in, calories out type of person, but that doesn't mean that calories go out the window. Um, we can overload our system with too much energy. So eating beyond your needs, even if it's keto, um, can cause metabolic dysfunction. So we'll see this if, if you have a huge meal and it's all steak, you're, you're going to see glucose rise. So um, portion size and overloading your body with too much energy that more than it needs is going to have an impact. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, that's, that's, that's one of the things that people don't realize that, you know, there are other things like protein as well as fats can raise your blood sugar and spike insulin eventually if you overconsume the calories. So the caloric load itself can be like a insulinogenic. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a big thing because a lot of people will be like, well, but it's keto and I don't know why my glucose is rising. And it's, you can definitely overload the system. Um, if you have too much energy coming in, the body is going to transport some of that into glucose, even if it's amino acids or it's fatty acids, it's going to change some of it into glucose. It's easier to store and we can store it as glycogen then. Um, and so you can definitely overload the system with too much food. And fat is an interesting one because technically fat really shouldn't stimulate insulin at all. And it should be the macronutrient that affects glucose the least. But um, when you're combining it with carbohydrates, it can cause prolonged glucose responses, um, especially with any refined carbohydrates. So portion size, again, really actually matters here because a lot of fats with a lot of carbohydrates can delay gastric emptying. That fat delays digestion and it can cause that glucose to be released in bouts like hours hours later so sometimes i'll see people eat a huge meal um like maybe it's a healthy meal and they ate like a massive steak with a bunch of non-starchy vegetables and then they had dessert afterwards and then they'll see this glucose response that lasts five six hours because all of the fat from the meal is really yeah. delaying that digestion and that's signaling a huge insulin response because that's going to be a giant area under the curve Mm. Um, so yeah. it does help because there's kind of some nuance here because there's the concept of no naked carbs where you're going to have a higher glucose response if you're eating carbohydrates by themselves. So pairing a little bit of fat or protein with a carbohydrate will help blunt that response. Um, even like the order of which you eat, I actually just did this test last week. I'm wearing a CGM right now. Um, I tried a bunch of different meals where I was like eating my carbs first and then my protein or my protein first and then my carbs. And it makes on average about um, for me personally, a change of about like 20 points Delta. So it'd be 20 point higher spike if I'm eating the carbs first versus the oh. protein first the same exact meal. Yeah. That's, but, that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A little goes a long way. If I was eating a huge portion size, it wouldn't matter that that's kind of going to backfire. So, um, no naked carbs is a good general rule of thumb. If you're eating appropriate portion sizes of whole foods, um, it's, it's not a good rule if you're eating processed foods or massive portion sizes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like about the processed carbs is yeah the that's the big worst combo ever imaginable where you combine a lot of these refined yes. carbs and sugars with the fats and uh, especially inflammatory fats. So you're you're like not only like causing massive amounts of inflammation and oxidative stress, but you also yeah prolong the uh, glucose spike. So it's going to be the glucose is going to stay elevated for longer. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I also believe that there's such com combo like where you have the fats and carbs together is also going to cause like additional mild insulin resistance, which is contributing to the prolonged elevation of glucose so that your body isn't producing enough uh, insulin mm -hmm. to lower the glucose so it stays elevated for longer. So that's why you probably yeah. wouldn't want to be having like, you know, donuts 
which is the were the perfect combo of these carbs and fats of the processed foods. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's definitely the worst thing you could do. There's no food in nature that has that combination of a ton of carbohydrates and a ton of fat. Um, but every processed food is usually that combination. And there's a reason that it's very addictive and it tastes good is because it's extremely um, energetic, right? There's a ton of energy with highly processed carbs and highly processed oils, which from an evolutionary perspective, our body is like, heck yeah, I just hit the energy <laughs> jackpot and I can store a ton of yeah. this, but it does not go well for metabolic health and for optimizing health, which we're now trying to do instead of an energy deficit like we used to be in. Mm -hmm. um, and there's evidence that high levels of circulating free fatty acids can induce a temporary insulin resistance. Um, the mechanisms aren't well understood here, but when you have this huge um, fat load with carbohydrates, it can induce this temporary state of insulin resistance. It's also part of the reason um, with the physiological insulin resistance, or if you're doing an extended fast and you break that fast, you're going to be in a state of temporary insulin resistance. So you want to break it with something small, protein, fat, um, you know, go on a walk, do something before then you have a big meal. I see this happen a lot. Well, somebody would do like a four out, a four day fast, and then they'll be hungry and they want to break a meal appropriately and they kind of overdo it. And then glucose will stay high for like 24, 36 hours. Um, which kind right. of backfires the goal of the extended right. fast. So I, I've seen this mistake several times. Um, I was very shocked the first couple of times because I wasn't expecting such a overreaction from the body, but you're in the state of insulin resistance if you haven't been with food for a while. So breaking a fast appropriately is also really, really important. Trust me. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree. And usually like the best things to break a fast would be something like protein that would just give you the amino acids but doesn't spike the insulin that high as as like processed carbs sure. as well as something like low glycemic that doesn't uh, have a, like that big of a glycemic uh, load yeah i usually recommend breaking the fast with like some eggs um and maybe some avocado if you want to feel a little bit more satiated and then like leaving the eating area so you're not tempted to keep doing it so like maybe yeah. have like three eggs and then go on a walk and then come back like an hour later or something um, it's, it's a good general rule of thumb. So definitely, yes, some protein, but not yeah. too much. <laughs> but what is the difference between, let's say, these uh, high glycemic carbs and low glycemic carbs that have like fiber or uh, different different nutrients that slow down the spike? Yeah. So, like, wh which foods in general have a lower glucose spike for people? Uh, well, like the the high high and low glycemic carbs, you know, there's you know people say white bread versus uh, whole wheat bread uh, or whole grain bread, mm -hmm. and uh, you know brown rice versus white rice, and you know differences in fiber and uh, these other nutrients. Yeah, in general, yeah. So glycemic index is based off of you know a standard portion size. How high is it going to raise your glucose? Um, but it's done on like a population level. So it doesn't take into account these individual differences we have, which is, you know, why it doesn't always match up with your physiology, but in general, the least processed foods are going to have a lower glycemic index. They're going to be less likely to spike your glucose as opposed to these more processed that have the fiber stripped away, the nutrients stripped away. Um, a big example that I've seen pretty much universally in everyone is the variance in like oat processing. So you have instant oats, which is basically like rolled dehydrated um, 
like already cooked. And then you have rolled oats, which are just kind of flattened, a little bit of processing, then you have steel cut oats. And the difference in glucose response from the same food, but different level of processing is pretty significant. Um, so me personally, it's, it's pretty much, a, it's about a 50 to 60 point difference between the instant oats and the steel cut oats. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty significant. That's a good example of glycemic index, but there's also some whole foods that just have a higher glycemic index. Um, so with fruits, there's things like tropical fruits, pineapple and mango and grapes are pretty much universally give a lot, a lot of people very high glucose spikes because they're just have a higher glycemic index on average where things like berries and cherries and stone fruits tend to on average give people lower glucose responses. There's always gonna be the variability between people, everyone responds differently, but as a general rule of thumb, um, that it's pretty applicable is that those tropical fruits are always going to be higher. Hmm. And what would be like a best, if, if people would like to eat some fruit, what is the best one maybe for managing blood sugar? As carbohydrates. Yeah. Yeah. As carbs and fruit and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely recommend um, whole fruits, those lower glycemic index. I always recommend that people, you know, when they're coming onto the program and they have a CGM is experiment. The best way to know is to test for yourself. So we'll do like a 30 gram carbohydrate test where like maybe in the morning when you're fasted in the same condition each day, you're trying 30 grams total carbohydrates of a different food each day. So maybe one day it's berries, the next day it's bananas, the next day it's cherries, and then white rice brown rice, and then you can see how you respond to each of those foods when no other variables are present. So you can see how you're individually just isolating that carbohydrate, how you respond. Um, but in general, you know, there's, there's five carbohydrate groups. So whole fruit tends to be good for most people if you're avoiding those super high glycemic fruits. Um, universally everyone spikes from grapes I, I don't know like what it is about grapes but <laughs> everyone has a huge spike from grapes so if you want to avoid that it's probably a good call yeah. um then we have grains you know grains is kind of iffy um especially gluten containing grains because there is definitely evidence that it can cause inflammation um, especially if any sensitivity so non-gluten containing grains might be best for people um so something like quinoa, if you respond well, although it's not a good one for me, but something like rice and various forms. Um, and then we have legumes. Again, not everybody tolerates legumes very well, but they do have a lot of fiber in them and they tend to be very low glycemic index. So from a glucose standpoint, legumes, you know, beans, peas, people respond pretty well. Hmm. Um, yeah. Dairy. Sorry, I was going to mention that uh, I was going to mention that the uh, I've actually I tried uh, eating like uh, elderberries, which are mm -hmm. and they and they they lowered my glucose a little bit because uh, after a postprandial glucose, so the elderberries are more like these very bitter, so they're not sweet and they have these polyphenols yeah. and uh, you know dark pigments that kind of lower some of the insulin or lower some of the glucose and uh, yet you know there's differences between you know grapes which are like genetically engineered to be super sweet yeah. and, and high in fructose compared to like regular elderberries which are like this very they don't taste you know really good but they are you know they, they do have like a good uh, like savory feeling but they're not like sugary and uh, sweet 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like, so wild berries, um, there's a ton of evidence that it actually decreases glucose. So it's counterintuitive because people are like, well, it's carbs, it's going to increase, but you're right. The polyphenols and the bitter compounds, they're going to actually decrease glucose. So it's, it's not all carb is a carb. Not all carbs are equal. There's certainly variance, you know, between people, but also as good general rules of thumb as you want to have. The, the lower glycemic index ones and definitely whole food based, um, you know, wild unprocessed carbohydrates are, are always going to be a better option. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned uh, dairy. So how does uh, that affect glucose? Yeah. For most people, um, it's pretty low glycemic index. Um, you know, you're having, it's, it's both glucose and lactose. So same with fruit, you know, it's fructose and glucose. So it's not all getting converted to glucose. Um, so you're not seeing as high as a glucose response. And then, you know, with all dairy, there's protein included, which does help blunt that response. With a lot of natural dairy, there's also fat included, which also helps. So most people who don't have any dairy intolerance, um, something like Greek yogurt is going to be a good carbohydrate choice for many people, assuming that it's unsweetened, which mm -hmm. you have yeah. to make sure, but does does like the allergies and food sensitivities how how big of a difference do they make like if a if a person is like allergic to gluten uh, they're going to probably react much worse than someone who isn't and you know the same applies to eggs or even dairy and uh, fish 100% yeah if you're eating something that you really don't tolerate well you will see a bump in glucose from that just because of the inflammation present um, when you, you eat something that your body is is not tolerating well, so whether it's an allergy or some sort of intolerance, there'll be an increase in glucose because of the inflammation. Yeah. And uh, what about protein? Like protein isn't like a carb source, but it could uh, convert into glucose if you overconsume it. It could, yeah. So definitely with, with protein, the biggest thing is portion size. Um, so there's always a lot of debate about will protein turn into glucose or not. You know, some people say yes, some people say no. I've definitely seen it. It's certainly possible, but it's, it's usually a large portion size. Um, so I think in general, most people are under eating protein. I'm not too concerned about most people in like general population eating too much. Um, if it's combined with other macronutrients, you know, that could be a bigger concern. But in general, protein is going to be low glycemic index. It does stimulate insulin to some degree. Um, some protein sources are more insulinogenic than others. Uh, whey protein, much more than other protein sources. But it's not necessarily going to increase your glucose. So it's usually in stimulating some insulin, but without stimulating a glucose increase. So you might actually see glucose decrease a little bit because of the insulin effect from the protein source. Right. Okay. Um, but would it be possible to like uh, get like diabetes from eating too much protein or get pre-diabetes if you like go through the conversion of protein into glucose too much or if you would do it like chronically all the time? I don't think so. I don't think it would cause diabetes. Um, I've never seen that happen. I, I think it would be really hard. I think you would just have to be eating so much food in general that that would right. be maybe more of the driver of the pathophysiology than the actual protein. Um, I think it would be more of an energy overload problem. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I agree. And because it would be too difficult to reach that point by just eating protein. So protein is like really satiating and you get yeah. full, you, you would get, you would get full faster than uh, you would be able to develop some, you know, patho, pathophysiology. And uh, yeah, like 
even even if yeah like it would only become a harm if you are like becoming obese from it and the same applies to any other food as well like you know you can get diabetic from probably eating too much fat uh, or too uh, too many carbs yeah 100% I, I think it would be more of an issue of overeating but you're right when when we increase people's protein intake when we're trying to lose weight or manage glucose control they're going to get much more full quickly so um, you have a hard time overeating if you're eating high quality protein um, if, maybe if you're eating like stripped whey protein shakes all day you might be <laughs> able to overeat enough yeah. but that would probably be the only way yeah, like yeah, because uh, you know the whey protein tends to have the sweeteners, and it's also coming in a liquid mm -hmm. form. So th does the yeah. does the does it like is it solid or versus liquid? Uh, does it that that affect uh, the glucose variability as well? Yeah, definitely, um, especially with carbohydrates, but it does with all foods. Um, processing matters. You know, a liquid version, it's basically like your body has already chewed it up and digested it for you. So it doesn't have to go through this slower digestion process. It just can like go straight into absorption because it's already in a liquid form. Um, so in general, like juice, not a, not a great idea, even if it's natural homemade juice, because it's already broken down for you. You've broken up those cellular walls. Your body no longer has to digest very much of it at all. It's already, it's already there for you, easy to digest. So, Yeah, totally. And um, maybe let's talk a little bit about the different uh, things as well, besides food, like sleep and uh, stress. Have you, have you noticed any specific uh, you know, trends in uh, how do they affect uh, glucose? Yeah, I would say it's equally important to nutrition. So we always talk about the four pillars of stress, exercise, fasting, and nutrition as like the four legs of a table. And if you take away one, the whole thing is going to fall. They are equally important. Um, we always have people who are really trying to hone in their diet, but then they're getting four hours of sleep every night and they're so stressed with their job and they're wondering why they're not reaching their goals. And it's because it's equally important. We have to address all of these factors. Um, so with sleep specifically, um, this is basically a stressor on your body, right? The, it is a bi-directional effect where both poor sleep can cause glucose to rise and then both hyperglycemia going into the night is going to give you worse sleep. So it's a double-edged sword. We need to make sure our glucose levels are in a, a good condition so that we can get good high quality sleep. But we also need to make sure that we're getting high quality sleep so that we can have good glucose values the next day. So even both, you know, interrupting deep sleep. So poor sleep quality is going to decrease insulin sensitivity and decrease our glucose tolerance and um, inadequate sleep. Like you could be getting high quality sleep, but it's just not long enough. It's going to have the same effect where you're decreasing your insulin sensitivity and decreasing glucose tolerance. So on average, people who are not getting high quality sleep and not getting enough sleep are going to have about 25 to 30% higher glucose values the next day to the same mm -hmm. foods they normally eat because your body's under stress. So yeah. it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, I always emphasize that sleep is a skill. If somebody has been not sleeping well for 20 years, this is a skill we need to work on just like going to the gym and lifting weights, right? We have to work on building a new sleep hygiene routine. We have to work on all of these different factors, making sure you're getting enough natural light during the day, avoiding artificial lights at night, all of these, you know, good sleep hygiene tips, we need to work on one at a time until it starts to feel like you've mastered the skill of sleep. 
because it, it's going to affect, not only is it going to affect glucose control, but it, it affects everything that you do and how your body performs. So it's yeah. a big one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sleep is stress. A, sleep is a pretty huge. And uh, a lot of times people completely neglect it, neglect it and they don't even pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And they, they, then they wonder like, why are they at a plateau or why is their blood sugar high? So yeah, it's getting, getting quality sleep is uh, pretty important. And uh, yeah, like making sure that you don't uh, like disrupt the circadian rhythms into doing as well. Because if you are sleeping at irregular times and uh, disrupting the circadian rhythms, then that's also going to cause like this basal increase in inflammation and oxidative stress and cortisol, which will be chronically uh, like elevating your blood sugar. So yeah, like the circadian aspect is also pretty uh, important. And, and your body like loses its ability to tolerate carbs. The... Uh, the later it gets, so to say. So if it's dark outside, then your ability to, to you know, metabolize glucose is uh, much lower than it is at uh, daytime and uh, when it's like, uh, you know, the sun, sun, yep. sun, sun is shining. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing we're talking about with everyone because a lot of people have their, you know, they're doing time-restricted eating, but their eating window is shifted towards the evening because I think it's easier for people to fast all day long and then eat later at night. Um, and then we'll see glucose values high all night from that and then poor sleep because of it. And it's because they're misaligning their eating with our natural circadian rhythm. So you're exactly right. We are most insulin sensitive in the middle of the day and we are at least insulin sensitive in the middle of the night. Our bodies are not meant to be eating late at night and especially not in the middle of the night. Even if it's no carbohydrates, they're going to see a higher glucose response if it's late at night. So that earlier time-restricted eating window is really important and it helps align the external cues of food with our internal circadian rhythms. Um, So that's a big one. It can help with sleep quality, but just overall good glucose management by shifting that eating window a little bit earlier into the day. Yeah. Is there like any any ways to uh, lower the postprandial glucose faster, so to say, that you would uh, not have have it uh, elevated for that long? Yeah. So you can go on a walk after eating. Um, Really simple. Just moving your body around is going to help pick up some of that circulating glucose. Um, So any type of movement, any type of exercise is going to help. You can do cold therapy. Cold therapy is definitely going to drop your glucose values. Um, That can help. And you can do certain supplements like vinegar. Vinegar is definitely going to drop your glucose. Um, there's other supplements like berberine, resveratrol, chromium. A lot of these have evidence to lower glucose values as well. Um, we don't always need to rely on supplements when, you know, you can do it naturally just by moving your body, but sometimes, um, they have a time and a place for sure. So the big thing is just moving, going on a walk, doing some sort of burst of activity. And this is something we talk about a lot just during the day, you know, we have the sedentary athlete syndrome where you go to the gym for an hour and then you sit for 23 hours, sit or lay. Um, and we need to be moving throughout the day. So if you're working in front of a computer every hour or so, try to break up that sitting with just like five minutes activity, you know, do some push-ups, do a plank, do some sit-ups, and then you can go back to work. But just breaking that up can make a huge, huge difference in insulin sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. I did notice like when I was using the CGM that, uh, you know, while the workout was uh, happening, then my blood sugar did spike a little bit because of like working out mm-hmm. and like mobilizing the glycogen and using, u- using that for energy, but, uh, it kind of lowered back down as well after afterwards. So, uh, yeah, so like a, the difference between this acute 
uh, spike that you get from exercise or, and and even like cold like I, I noticed that if I jump into like ice bath or a cold shower then it does spike like acutely again for the for a little bit but it go, gonna goes back down afterwards yeah, 100%. It's different than like a glucose spike coming from food. Um, it is normal to see a glucose spike when you're exercising, especially if it's very glycolytic. So um, if you're training in a fasted state, if you're doing really intense, um, like HIIT workout or intense strength training, you're probably going to see a glucose spike because your body is yeah breaking down those glycogen stores and mobilizing glucose for energy. But the difference between that coming from a glucose spike from a food and from exercise is that your body is using that energy right away when you're exercising. It's mobilizing that glucose because it wants to use it for energy to fuel your, your exercise. Um, not necessarily the case when you have a huge glucose spike from a bunch of carbohydrates, your body is instead trying to store that for energy as opposed to use it right away. Mm. So there's definitely nuances there. Um, a glucose so, spike is not a bad thing with exercise. So like, would it be like the best time to eat donuts during exercise so that you would shovel it then right into the cells? Technically, yes. Like if you are going to do it, do it right after exercise. Like you, you won't see as high of a spike and your body might actually use that energy as opposed to just immediately storing it. Um, it is the best time. Not that I would recommend it, but if you're going to yeah. do it, do it smartly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what about stress? Yeah, stress is a big one. So um, we have a natural stress response, normal natural stress response that's going to increase glucose. And that's not a big deal, right? When you're stressed, you're gonna have an acute increase in cortisol, adrenaline, other hormones, and this is gonna stimulate gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. So breaking down those glycogen stores, creating new glucose, new glucose, but it's also going to reduce our insulin to make us naturally less insulin sensitive, less insulin sensitive. Because the goal is that your body's trying to give yourself a little extra energy to deal with the stressor. So normally when we're stressed, it's because we need to like run from something or we need to fight something and we need a little bit of extra energy to deal with the stressor at hand. So this is a normal stress response, this acute little increase, and then it should go back down when problem goes away. Um, what becomes a bigger problem is chronic stress, right? Our body is not designed to be under chronic stress. It is only designed to have these acute stress responses. So what happens with chronic stress is that you're going to have this constantly elevated glucose levels and constantly decreased insulin sensitivity. So particularly when somebody has a high fasting glucose value in the morning, but they're eating really well, they're exercising well, it's almost always related to stress, like stress from psychological stress or poor sleep, because that cortisol is usually driving up that gluconeogenesis, especially in a fasted state. So it can cause a whole host of problems. I think, I think we all know how important it is to make sure that stress is well managed as well. Um, not only is it going to constantly be increasing your glucose levels and decreasing your insulin sensitivity, but it's just going to activate other processes that trigger fat storage into visceral fat because the body is thinking that it needs energy that is easily tapped into, which stimulates stress eating. Um, and desire for more calorically dense foods. So it's this double-edged sword again, where we're having higher glucose levels, but we're also craving foods that are worse for us. So really need to make sure that we're aware of what's happening with stress. I think a lot of people um, 
tell me they're not stressed, but then it's obvious in their data. So being aware of what's going on and actually being able to recognize that from the data can be helpful for a lot of people. The first step to managing stress is awareness and paying attention to your body cues. Um, So sometimes it's something that's very intangible, but when you can see glucose rising after a stressful day, that can help enhance that mind-body connection and you can recognize, okay, this is actually a problem. It's not a normal stress response. I'm pushing my body way too hard with unnecessary yeah. psychological stress. So yeah. um, it can be good reinforcement for people to see the data because it, it's a huge factor. Probably discussing stress more than nutrition half the time because it's just so yeah. prevalent um, in our society. Yeah, totally. And and like the, the same applies to like sleep deprivation. So if you are sleep deprived, then you crave more of those uh, hyperpalatable mm-hmm. foods and your body is also the least capable of handling them. So it's again... A vicious cycle so that you're you're putting yourself at a higher risk of metabolic dysfunction when you when you do eat uh, these processed foods uh, in a state of yeah. sleep deprivation and the insulin resistance that uh, accompanies it uh, but it, but that's why like it's very useful to actually combine these different uh, self-quantification uh, you know applications uh, to the CGM such as like monitoring your sleep and monitoring mm-hmm. your like stress level so to say so you can uh, correlated with your CGM re- results. So you can see like, okay, why is my blood sugar high? Maybe it's because I slept bad or maybe it's because I, you know, woke up, uh, you know, 10 times a night uh, as, as opposed to sleeping, uh, you know, the eight straight eight hours. So yeah, you can use like these different devices as, as well to combine or complement the uh, CGM. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason we, we built software for this because the software that comes with the devices just tells you your glucose and it's meant for diabetics. So it also just tells you how to like insulin dose based off of the glucose level, which is not very helpful. And so what we wanted to do was have a place where you can combine all these metrics and make sense of your data. Um, so right now we pull in like sleep time from Aura and, and you can log other metrics so you can compare it. But the goal is that everything is there together in one centralized location and giving you insights and analytics based off of all of these facets of health so that you know exactly what's going on. And that can enhance mindful eating, right? If you know, wow, my glucose is high because I slept crappy and you're tempted to eat that donut, but you know, you're like, I know this is because I slept poorly and not because I'm actually hungry or because I actually want this donut. It makes it much easier to make good decisions when you have all of the pieces together, helping you understand like what's actually driving these cravings instead of just giving into it and just instead of just doing it because Mm -hmm. that's what your body's pushing you to do. When you understand it, it really helps to make good, meaningful decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Like the awareness is key. And uh, like a lot of pe- a lot of time, people say like uh, that. I I just uh, I want to eat this donut because uh, you know I like to live, or I just want to take care of myself and uh, give myself this uh, pleasure pleasurable treat. Whereas mm-hmm. in reality, they are just sleep deprived, or they are stressed out, or whatever whatever it may be. Uh, so it's yeah, like there's a difference between uh, you know being making a decision consciously versus making a decision based upon your like hormones or based upon your uh, recovery status and those things. So. I'm 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 not against like maybe eating a donut for the sake of just pleasure or doing and doing it in a, like a safe environment, but uh, if you're doing it just because of like a coping mechanism against stress or sleep deprivation, then you just you're just focusing on the wrong thing and you should you know fix the sleep and the, the stress first. A hundred percent. Yeah, I 
I'm not always going to eat perfect. And sometimes I'm going to have food that is just fun because I want it, but I want it to be uh, a mindful decision. I want to have weighed the, you know, the costs and the benefits and made the decision because I want the food, not because my monkey brain is driving me to eat whatever because I didn't sleep well. So I think that's a big decision is it should be, it should be mindful. You should be in control of your decisions and not being driven by, you know, cravings or hormones that have been altered because of, you know, whatever X, Y, Z reason. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And that's why like these, the Nutrisense CGM is also very, very useful. And one of the best uh, like features that I found was that if you, uh, it, it kind of stores all the data throughout the entire day and uh, you can like synchronize it even once, once a day or one, once within eight hours. And you're going to get all the, to- all the data within that eight hours without necessarily having to like constantly measure it like, like you do with uh, some other devices. So that's like the best uh, feature of, of uh, your app is that you get the data kind of stored in the cloud. And when you synchronize it, you're going to get all the data within like, let's say w- between the hours of 12 p.m. until 4 p.m. You're going to get all the data and uh, then you can see like these all these spikes and variations without having to like constantly be monitoring it. Exactly. Yeah. So the device stays on for 14 days and it holds up to eight hours of data at a time. So yeah, if if you scan it towards the end of the day and you scanned it when you first woke up, you're going to then see all the data for the day and you can kind of analyze it, figure out what's going on. But if you also want to know right in the moment, like what's actually going on, am I stressed or like, am I actually craving something? You can just see it really quickly. So you can look at it whenever you want, but you don't have to look at it 24 seven if you don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there like any specific times or the best times to measure it? You mentioned that early in the morning and uh, in the evening. Yeah, because it holds up to eight hours of data at a time, we recommend like scanning when you wake up because you want to see, you want to capture as much of the night as possible. Um, so pull like the last eight hours of data once you wake up. So you can see kind of how, what your glucose looked like while you were sleeping. Was it high all night because you ate late or because you were stressed? Um, but then, you know, checking it again sometime during the day and then before bed to capture that full 24 hours of data. But, you know, the more you check it, the better. So I like to know, like, right after I eat something, what's happening, I'll check it again, like two hours later, and then you can see the full curve. Um, but if you wanted to wait that full hours, because you don't want it to be checking it constantly, that's, that's perfectly fine, too. The data will be there. But you can check it and see it if you want to just kind of mm-hmm. obsessively look at it, which some people do. <laughs> Yeah, it got does become like very fun and uh, g- gamifies yeah. <laughs> it. So it's a competition with yourself, and yeah, it's like really fascinating to see and exciting, and it's like getting like a small dopamine rush whenever you do uh, measure it, yeah. take a look at it. <laughs> but what does a what does a like a what does a healthy glucose uh, daily rhythm look like? Or like when when should it rise? When should it uh, get lower? And what does a, like a dysfunctional uh, glucose rhythm look like where which we indicate towards more like uh, diabetes and uh, metabolic syndrome yeah it's normal to have a little bump in glucose in the early morning hours it depends on kind of like your sleep wake cycle but usually between like 4 and 8 a.m for most people um cortisol starts to increase and you'll have a little bit of glucose increase maybe to like 100 110 for some people, but then it should come back down once you're waking. So when you wake up and you start to move around for the day, it should kind of come back down into that normal fasting glucose range, that 70 to 90. And then it should stay within that range, some fluctuation between, you know, 70 to 90, maybe in the low 90s while you're fasted throughout the day doing whatever is 
totally normal. Um, some people expect to see glucose completely static and they're like, why is it moving from 70 to 80 and I'm fasted? Um, that's totally normal. You know, our body is always doing this homeostatic normal range where it's releasing a little bit of glucagon to increase glucose and you know, maybe then it's, it's going back down. And so it's always going to be fluctuating a little bit. That's totally normal. Um, and then whenever you're eating meals or when you're exercising, that's when you might see the higher glucose responses. Um, but like what we talked about, it should just peak within the first 30 minutes. Um, that is an appropriate peak glucose response is if you see it go up within 30 minutes of eating, and then it should come back down to normal within two to three hours. Um, a delayed glucose spike is a signal of delayed insulin response. So that could be insulin resistance. Um, that's one type. There's many different types, but abnormal glucose throughout the day. A lot of people who have insulin resistance will have glucose rising unnaturally when they're fasted. Um, so a lot of times they'll, while they're awake and they're moving, it might be in that normal 70 to 90 range. Um, and then when they go to sleep, it's rising to 110, 120, 130. Um, and that is a signal that the body's having a hard time regulating its own glucose stores when it's in a fasted state. So that's usually a very early signal of insulin resistance is those high nighttime values. Because normally when you're fasted, the liver should be able to handle that. It should be able to keep it in that tight range. Um, if it starts to be higher, maybe that's a signal that the communication is not going well between insulin and glucagon and glucose levels. Um, so this seems to happen a lot with like the very early stage insulin resistant people. And then um, with the postprandial response, that's also a sign of insulin resistance. Of if you're eating a normal carbohydrate load, if you eat 50 grams of carbohydrates from a whole food, you shouldn't see it spike that high and you should see it come back down to normal. Um, so that's why we do a lot of glucose tolerance tests. We'll do like 75 grams total of either like white rice, potatoes. Um, if you're carnivore, a lot of people are doing honey. And then we'll just see what that response looks like. Cause you can see that earlier insulin resistance and that response way before you would catch it on like a hemoglobin A1C or a fasting glucose from a lab. Um, because most of the time that fasting glucose drops for people when they're waking and then hemoglobin A1C is just an average of your glucose. It's, it's not going to tell you a whole lot of information about what's going on. That is a very delayed marker of insulin resistance and diabetes your hemoglobin A1C is not going to start to increase until you, you have a decent amount of damage already accumulated. Um, okay. So it's a very delayed metric. Right, right. And uh, like uh, how, how fast could uh, people expect to see like uh, results if they did start? Like they, they may have like some, uh, let's say, either uh, like a severe t state of diabetes or pre-diabetes like is the, how fast do usually people um, are able to fix uh, their condition and get back to like more mm -hmm. normal normal levels yeah it, it depends on like the severity of insulin resistance but we can get the postprandial and the glycemic variability improved really fast with dietary changes so if somebody is showing severe signs of insulin resistance we're going to do a very strict low carb ketogenic diet because we have to reduce the carbohydrates, which are just adding fuel to the fire, right? So we need to get those postprandial responses down and glycemic variability down. We can get that down within just you know a few days of changing your diet. To change, to lower that fasting glucose, um, 
So that endogenous response, that normal regulation that's happening with the liver, that takes a little bit more time. If you have severe insulin resistance, um, if you're diabetic, you know, not on insulin yet, um, it's going to take a few months of pretty consistent effort, um, a combination of fasting. Um, one of the best ways, if you have pretty severe insulin resistance or even mild insulin resistance, we're going to want to do some longer fasting times in addition to just like daily time restricted eating. Um, that's one of the best ways to force the liver to figure out how to use its own sources and regulate glucose control. Um, so we're going to do extended fasting. We're going to increase exercise. So moving throughout the day and strength training, um, and then really hone in on sleep and stress if that's an issue. And then it does take a few months of consistent effort with those different factors to see those fasting glucose values come back down into normal. Um, it's certainly possible. Like I, I do want everyone to know that if you do have insulin resistance, if you do have diabetes, it's not, you're not stuck with it. You 100% can get those levels back down into normal, but it does take a decent amount of effort. By the time you hit a diabetes diagnosis, uh, about 60% of the beta cells in your insulin have been in your pancreas that secrete insulin have been damaged. Um, so quite a bit of damage has occurred by the time you get there, which is why we're trying to catch it really early. But that doesn't mean that we can't correct a lot of the issues that have already occurred and been built up. Right. Yeah. And uh, how long does a CGM last? You said it's 14 days. Yep. Each CGM lasts for 14 days. So um, with NutriSense, we offer like one CGM for 14 days, or we offer recurring monthly subscriptions. So the one CGM one time, no commitment is good for somebody who just kind of wants to see what their glucose looks like. Um, you know, maybe they're not changing their diet a lot. They don't have a lot of like work to do on their metabolic health. You just kind of checking it out. Um, monthly subscriptions, you get two CGMs per month. Um, we have different time lengths. And that's really good if you are seeing signs of insulin resistance and you really need to work on getting that back down. Or maybe you're doing a bunch of diet experiments and you want to test things for longer. Um, it's hard to really test a bunch of things in, in two weeks. Like if you want to see how you respond to a variety of foods and fasting regimens, um, it might take more than two weeks. So, and then some people are super healthy and they're just looking to optimize it and they're using it for multiple months because it drives behavior change. Seeing that mm -hmm. data helps them stay accountable. Um, so maybe they don't have any changes to make, but the data helps drive them to stay where they are in that optimizing route. Um, yeah. So people use it for different reasons, but we have options for short-term and long-term. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, one, it's like similar to taking a genetic test, uh, so to say. So you would find out uh, what's your unique uniqueness and uh, unique uh, mm -hmm. metabolic effects. And yeah, like even if you don't have prediabetes, you can really find a lot of value uh, and good information from it. So you can just be aware, so to say, and be also 100%. able to optimize it uh, in the future. Yeah, because some of this is really hard to know if, um, if you're not measuring it. Like, you know, the unique responses to food, of course, but a lot of these measures to to indicate insulin resistance or glucose intolerance, like we said, are just kind of lagging. Um, A1C, fasting glucose, it, it doesn't give you a good picture of what's going on. So yeah, it's good even if you're very healthy to just do an assessment and to learn your unique responses to food. Mm -hmm. And you, you also offer some uh, nutritional counseling or consulting at NutriSense, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So all of our programs come with dietitian support. Um, so I'm a dietitian. I lead the dietitian team and it's like a in-app chat. So basically like texting through the app and we include that because we want to make sure that people have some sort of signal through the noise. Um, we really don't want it to just be a bunch of data that you don't know what to do with it. Cause we actually want to make these meaningful changes. Um, so for some people who are really knowledgeable, really healthy, it might just be helping them, um, prompt experiments, how to learn more about themselves or different things to try. But with other people, it's helping to assess if they have insulin resistance and then what to do about it. So it looks different for everyone. It can be utilized however way you want. Um, the dietitians aren't there to tell you to follow a specific plan. It's not like Weight Watchers where it's like, do this thing. Um, they're really just there for support and to meet you wherever you are and however you want to utilize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, really good. It's a great uh, service and a good uh, device as well, so to say, that people can definitely find a lot of uh, valuable you know, use from it. And uh, it's been great talking with you as well. So before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your work? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Collier one um, and then also our, our NutriSense Instagram, NutriSense.io. I'm putting out a lot of like glucose related information on there. If you specifically want to see like people's glucose data and different glucose hacks, a lot of information is on that Instagram account. Good. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? I wish I adopted sooner. The early time restricted eating window. I really didn't realize how important that was um, until I started seeing my data. Um, and, and it's pretty obvious in my data and everyone else's data how important it is to align that eating window with your circadian rhythm. And so now I'm very much a stickler about it, but I didn't realize what was happening until I started measuring it. So I wish I had known that sooner. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good good advice. So if you are like aligned with the rhythms, uh, then it's like just that much easier for your body to stay healthy and that much uh, easier. Yes, it's easier to stay optimal and uh, don't experience these uh, spikes and that's sort of thing. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's been good talking with you and uh, yeah, I definitely recommend anyone who just wants to experiment or fix their health to check out uh, NutriSense. It's a really fun tool and uh, like really good uh, quality information from it as well. Yeah. Awesome. It was fun talking with you. Yes, you too. All right, that's it for this episode. If you want to support us, then leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can also share it with a friend. If you want to learn more about the topics that we discussed in this episode, then check out my new book, Stronger by Stress. But on that, thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.